Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. Every society has a fundamental problem, which is how does it reach some kind of consensus about things that people need to agree on in order to function as a society? And for the first 200,000 or so years of our history, the way we came to consensus about belief was we divided into sects with religions or authorities, priests, princes, or politburos. And they told us what we had to believe. So there was a lot of oppression, a lot of ignorance, brutality, sectarianism, cultism. That changes right at the same time that you see Adam Smith and Markets and James Madison in the U.S. Constitution. You see the flowering of science, what I call liberal science, much bigger than just the science. It includes journalism and law, all the fact-seeking professions. And that's a species-transforming technology because once you got these rules up, I call them the constitution of knowledge, but they're the rules and institutions that, that force us to actually present evidence, to persuade instead of using coercion by substituting rules for rulers. You can generate now more knowledge in a single day than in the first 200,000 years of human history because you've now got a transnational body of millions and millions of trained minds in every field and thousands of institutions training those minds, deploying resources so that they can pivot literally in days to decode the genome, for example, of coronavirus. This is a species-transforming technology. It is the biggest transformative technology I believe that exists. More important than markets, more important than democracy. It gives us knowledge, freedom, and peace. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of the people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do various things at Freethink and occasionally I, I do things in other places. And sometimes they cause problems for me personally, drama, <laughs> ulcers, all sorts statement. of things. But whatever, you know, sometimes, just sometimes. <laughs> but wait till you see what I do next week. I am joined by Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, Michael Moynihan, Vice News. It is wonderful to be with both of you gentlemen today. I am excited. Amongst friends, Camille. Amongst friends. Mm -hmm. It's good yeah. to not be battling people online all the time, and I want to tell people <laughs> yeah. they should listen to the Patreon, where Camille kind of expands on his argument for about 20 seconds and then yep. disappears <laughs> while we're recording into Twitter fights. <laughs> with um, yeah. the, uh, I would say the Rufoists. Is that a, can I, can I coin a phrase there? So it's not, it's not just Rufoist. And again, I, I like Chris Rufo as a human being, and I don't think he's a bad person with malevolent intent. That, that may not be a popular opinion in certain circles, but that is the truth. So, I mean, come on, man. <laughs> come on, man. This Can't we all just get along? Before we introduce <laughs> our illustrious guest, I just want to point out that throughout this whole little thing, you've be, be becoming Joe Biden. <laughs> come on, man. Come on. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to talk to Chris Rufo. Man. Get the vaccine. Come on. Come get on. the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tried to give you Rodney King meets Joe Biden a moment ago. But that, that's hard. <laughs> Today, we are, are very, very pleased <laughs> to have a celebrated wordsmith among our ranks, mm -hmm. uh, a thoughtful, 
public intellual mm. among the few people who actually deserve the title. And frequently celebrated by us. Yes, to, this yeah, is true. We're the, we're the number one fan club. We've helped sell some books, I'd say a few, <laughs> and as a result are entitled to royalties, and he will not deny it. Jonathan Rausch is with us, ladies and gentlemen, author of The Constitution of Knowledge, his most recent book, A Defense of Truth. Happy to have you here with us, Mr. Rausch. I am happy to be here. I love you guys and your show. Thank you very much. I was delighted to learn that you knew what the show was, which also, I think, perhaps speaks a little bit poorly of you because it suggests you're the kind of bad <laughs> character who tolerates our show. We typically assume it's a bunch of weirdos and crackpots. Yeah. But... I've, I've always wanted to be introduced as yes. the celebrated <laughs> now that I have been celebrated, I am the celebrated Jonathan Rapp. I actually like that. That's good. It's like Megan the Stallion. It's the same. That's exactly the same yeah, thing. It flies over the head of about 70% of the people listening to the show, but that's cool. I have a mental image of both whenever each other is yeah. mentioned. Rouch, Stallion, Rouch, Stallion. <laughs> no, Matt, that's no. Lizzo. That is Lizzo um, in your mental image. I know what you're into. Um, well, John, thank you so much for joining us, especially of this week in particular, um, because it's been like a bit of an interesting week for me personally. Um, I mentioned, I think last week on the podcast when we were talking to uh, Chris Rufo that I might have a thing published in the New York Times and it came out on the 5th, I guess, which was Monday. And since then, I have been astonished by the response to this thing that I was merely a co-author on and in, in truth should probably be listed last in terms of the bylines, but I'm first because of the alphabetical order thing with Jason Stanley, uh, David French and Thomas Chatterton Williams was all more accomplished and brighter than me. But we wrote a thing about these critical race theory bans and your work, John, with respect to both the constitution of knowledge and some of your pre preceding works have all been about similar topics not just the curriculum controversies that have existed in the country at different points, but these kind of broader cultural civil wars, which seem to be fundamentally about the ideas that you have been covering. How are you thinking about America today from the publication of your earlier work through the, the past 13 tumultuous months? Well, that's a big question. So in 1993, I wrote a book called Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought. And despite the promotional efforts of you guys, <laughs> for the first 20 to 25 years, that book went completely unnoticed. And the reason for that is it was ahead of its time because it said that we have the system for creating knowledge, creating truth, facts. I called it liberal science. By that, I meant not just the hard sciences, but the humanities and journalism and everyone in the fact-finding game. I said, it's this worldwide system. It's not just a marketplace. And here's how it works. And then people get interested in that a few years ago. And part of that is because we suddenly see the emergence of things like trolling, Gamergate, anti-vaxxers, Russian uh, disinformation. And we see the emergence of something that comes, becomes known as canceling very quickly, a word that didn't exist when I started my book. And that's the use of social coercion to intimidate and silence, shame, harass. And we began seeing these things having really profound effects on, on the way our knowledge economy is working. Like right now, 60% uh, of Americans say that they're reluctant to state their true political opinions for fear of social consequences. A third say they're reluctant for fear of being fired or losing a job opportunity, uh, including, by the way, just as many progressives as conservatives. And then you had Donald Trump. And 
Trump is the greatest agent of propaganda and disinformation since the 1930s. And he had the brilliant idea of adapting Russian-style disinformation tactics, firehose of falsehood, conspiracy bootstrapping, trolling, applying that to American politics from the presidency. So now we're in a country that's widely chilled, and we're in a country where 70% of Republicans think the election was stolen. And we're only just getting started. So people use the term epistemic crisis. Obama used that term. I think that's a good term for where we are. It's um, our system for deciding what's true and what's not true. And how we do that is under attack, and it's pretty severe. To go from Camille's enormous question to another one uh, that is probably too big, but how did we get here? I mean, I, I go back and try to find these places, these incidents where the culture kind of shifted and changed and, you know, because we, we kind of laughed at this, uh, some of the stuff in the past, some of the sort of crazier stuff. I mean, is it, and you talk about this in your book, is it technology? Is it Donald Trump? I mean, of course, you have to consider what created Donald Trump, et cetera. Are there any moments that you see as kind of watershed moments to try to bring in this kind of world that we live in right now? Well, a lot of the ideas aren't new, and that's why Kindly Inquisitors found its audience after, I don't know, 25 years, because... 1993, I was talking about what I called the humanitarian threat, which is the idea that offensive words um, are a form of violence because mm -hmm. they hurt us. So that was out there. And a lot of the other ideas were, were out there. Critical race theory has been around for a while, and lots of things have been around. But, yeah, there were some moments when we should have. We did not at the time, but we should have recognized there were turning points. One is Gamergate and anti-vaxxers, which began really exploring how to do disinformation and conspiracism online. Another is 2014 and 15, the Russians start um, testing our information systems, doing things like the troll factory in St. Petersburg spread word that there had been a massive chemical plant fire in Louisiana on September 11th, 2014. And at the time, people thought it was a prank. Well, it wasn't. They were probing our systems. They did the same thing six months later. Then they came into the election. So those were warning signs. Uh, the, biggest, the biggest moment for me is the 2016 presidential campaign. Because there you see a candidate who, according to PolitiFact, which keeps the broadest tally, in that campaign, 25% of what Hillary Clinton said that's checkable, that was checked, is... Uh, mostly or entirely false. Okay, that's that's too high. It should be lower. But it's not out of line with what we expect of politicians in the heat of the campaign. The equivalent number for Donald Trump is 70%, 7-0. When the guy opens his mouth, he's probably lying. And at the time, we said, well, he's a weirdo. He's a sociopath. Maybe he doesn't know the difference between fact and fiction. We did not know what we were looking at. But had we known, we would have understood he's using a Russian tactic. It's called the fire hose of falsehood. And the idea is to spew so many lies, falsehoods, half-truths, conspiracy theories, and the occasional truth so quickly, regardless of consistency, logicality, plausibility, through so many channels that everyone gets too confused to trust anyone. And it worked like a charm. He continues doing that for four years. He ramps it up in April of last year with the attack on mail-in voting, which basically is organizing the epistemic attack that comes on November 4th, which we're still in. But yeah, I look at 2016, 2016, 2014 as the turning points. Uh, a couple of things uh, uh, on that. One is, is it helpful to 
describe that as being like uh, sort of a, a Russian influence or Russia created just in the sense of um, ha- hasn't this been what populist politicians, American or foreign, have been doing forever? It's kind of what they do. They bluster. They say, I'm from the people. Um, I'm going against the elites. And I'm going to say it's Pappy O'Daniel, for crying out loud, from from a thousand years ago uh, in, I believe, Texas. Um I mean, that's just that's that's populist playbook as much as it is, you know, an, an ex-Soviet uh, ally and maybe related to that um, or might be a secondary thing. Um, uh, that's not that is a thing and it's a big and 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 I think bad thing. And, and Camille and I might disagree to the degree of, of that. But like the way that people in the industry that I work in, in the playground I was just at talking with a friend who works in publishing, um, the threat that they feel at work is not from. Russian disinformation. It's from being falsely accused online of being a pedophile or being a sexist or being a racist and being afraid to write a single sentence for fear of being canceled. So I'm going to try not to filibuster the web. And uh, number one, <laughs> no, Matt, you are wrong. There's, I love when people say that. <laughs> there's all kinds of ways to be a populist without using Russian style disinformation tactics without spreading insane conspiracy theories. This is something different. Uh, Firehose of falsehood, it's, it's attention hijacking. Putting out so many falsehoods so quickly that media can't keep up, you can't fact check it, no one knows what to believe. That's what he's doing when he goes 60 frivolous lawsuits about the election, saying stuff so crazy you can't even present it in court, but winning in court isn't the point. That's not just having a consistent line that's populist. It's what Steve Bannon said, right? The way we win is to flood the zone with shit. So on the second point, yeah, the other big threat that the book talks about is social coercion. And that's, that's what people in our world, intellectuals, are increasingly worried about and, and should be. And that's when you get canceled for saying stuff. That's also a form of information warfare. Um, so here's what information warfare is. It's organizing and manipulating the social and media environments for political advantage, specifically to... Um, disorient, divide, dominate, and ultimately demoralize your target population. And one way to do that is firehose a falsehood like Trump. Another way to do that is use social coercion to intimidate anyone who even fears getting on the wrong side of you. And they're both quite effective and they're both quite old. Um, And the latter really takes off. You know, it's been around forever. Tocqueville describes canceling in the U.S. in the 1830s. Mill in On Liberty, Chapter 3, basically says the biggest threat to liberty is not government. It's what we call canceling, suppression of intellectual diversity. But in 2014, a guy named Brendan Eich is named CEO of Mozilla. And some people dig up the fact that six years earlier, he'd given $1,000 to a campaign against gay marriage in California. And they demand his removal. They do one of these online, you know, pylons. And the next day, Mozilla fires him and apologizes. And again, this was a shot over the bow at the time. We thought, well, that's weird. What we didn't realize was that this was the initial run of what would become standard operating procedure. One of my favorite lines in that chapter where you actually talk about the kind of overlooked chapter of Mail and On Liberty, which I think is a a fantastic uh, point, was this kind of parenthetical that you have about people saying things like this, particularly on... on, um, uh, gay issues, you said, and I think is hilarious. You said, if somebody calls me 
a fucking faggot, and I'm quoting you here, so please don't cancel me. If somebody calls me a fucking faggot, I say, you need to have your head checked, and by the way, I'm not a fucking faggot, which is, by, is the best way of, of dealing with, with this stuff. And I remember the Mozilla thing uh, quite well in, in worrying where that was going, and I think people thought I was insane when I was talking about it at the time. But on, on the, the um, Russian thing and the Trump thing, I think it's undeniable that Donald Trump, you know, to quote, you know, Mary McCarthy on Lillian Hellman, every word he says is a lie, including and and the. And it, you just can't watch him and think that any of this is true, right? Um, is there some spillover effect in this in some ways? And which part of this is kind of normal, dishonest politics? And what part of it is people adapting to Donald Trump? Because one of the things about the, the Russian stuff is what you're saying is quite different, is saying that, you know, they're using the tactics that one would expect from the GRU, SVR, um, FSB kind of uh, playbook to what it became, which was that Donald Trump was an illegitimate president because of the Russians, you know, ushered him into office. And that was its own type of paranoia and stuff that wasn't, I mean, there were seeds of truth in there, which Donald Trump of, often plays with himself. But, you know, these, some of these meetings and some of these dodgy um, associations, but it was like wildly overstated that, you know, I knew a lot of people that said, you know, Donald Trump is the president, but without the Russians, he wouldn't be president. And I saw a bunch of silly Facebook ads and things like that, but that never connected to me. And I wonder how much of that is our reaction to this kind of craziness from Donald Trump, a, a different type of craziness. And does that pull us even deeper into the morass? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Can I just append something briefly to that before you yeah, answer, yeah. John? I mean, because as you were talking about the sort of 70% of conservatives who are doubtful about the legitimacy of the election, I've seen numbers from previous elections that are sort of similarly bad. There is a trajectory and they're getting worse. But it seems to me that we've been in a pretty bad state for quite some time. The the Russian thing is, I mean, it's it's kind of separate, but... But I'm going to try to respond to that since I don't have a crisp, clear, in other words, good answer. Just say that Matt's wrong because Matt's still <laughs> Just keep saying it. Yeah, you're still wrong. Yeah. Is it, see, we have to remember that the notion of a presidential candidate lying 70% of the time and then is his first two acts in office lying about the crowd side in his yes. inauguration and lying about whether it rained in his inauguration, <laughs> facts which are absurdly easy to check. The point of doing that isn't to persuade people that something is that's actually false is true. The point is to express a kind of immunity to any standards of truth at all. It's what Putin does, right? Whatever I say is true, it's false, it doesn't matter. I can say it. You'll never know what's true or false anymore. And when you put people in that environment who have never been in that environment, because we've never seen a politician do that in America, um, they don't know how to react. They are suddenly swimming. Their, their feet are no longer on the ground, right? They don't know who to trust. They don't know what to believe. They believe that Trump is capable of anything. He's certainly capable of saying anything. He's capable of taking a Sharpie to a weapon. Yeah, that's often forgotten about. <laughs> and what they're trying to do, what people who use these tactics are trying to do is cause disorientation and demoralization. So you begin to feel it's almost futile to try to get your hands around the situation and understand what's going on. Anything could be true. The Steele dossier might be true. The opposite of the Steele dossier might be true. And that's the effect that they're going for, right? That kind of sense of confusion and disorientation and demoralization, the sense of futility. So it's not surprising in that environment that you see all kinds of weird stuff happen that we're not used to seeing. And so Camille, no, this is worse. 
This is just way worse. We have not seen 70% of a political party out there saying the election was stolen, running propaganda theater. Yeah, I acknowledge Propaganda that it's worse. theater recounts in, in Arizona. That's Maricopa. I'm from Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And in the arena where I used to watch Suns games as a kid, there's now a completely partisan bogus so-called recount going on. It's really propaganda theater. Mm-hmm. To like, you know, they're testing ballots to see if there are bamboo fiber yeah. fibers from China. But what this is really all about is spreading conspiracy theories and recruiting other people who are part of this disinformation network from around the country to come to Arizona, see what they're doing, raise more money and replicate this elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've never seen anything like this. Yeah, I, I, I would concur that it's that it's worse. I suppose I am very much influenced by Martin Gurry's revolt of the public interpretation of what's happened over the course of the last couple of decades and his perspective on the information tsunami, the prevalence of all of these new technologies, the availability of information, and a general erosion of confidence in these traditional spheres of authority that we've depended upon has contributed to a great deal of uncertainty. It doesn't seem to me that 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 perspective is incompatible with the perspective that you're laying out here, that having a particularly anomalous figure kind of come in, be president for some time to bust up a bunch of norms, to have that happen at the same time is perhaps a bit of a perfect storm, but the trend line was already pretty bad and that Trump is exited. He is off the stage. He's not on Twitter anymore. You know, whatever's happening with the ballots in Arizona, that's not really what's what's going on in New York. It's not present front of mind, I don't think, in New York, um, the sort of center of the media ecosystem. And the reality is that I think that journalism hasn't fared terribly well over the course of the past couple of years either. And while not necessarily promoting like misinformation deliberately because of a kind of rigid ideological um, kind of monoculture that exists there, there are regular systematic errors and regular patterns of reporting that are compounding that distrust and are creating a circumstance that's more uncertain. And it matters, I think, that the errors that are being made are oftentimes in one direction um, and, and, and almost never in the other. Even when the reversals come later, it's, it's one thing to kind of make a mistake and then apologize for it. But if you make a mistake, oftentimes the mistake is all that matters. No one reads the retraction. So there's a bunch of stuff there. Can we come back to journalism because it's really important? But for can sure. I talk about the other two things? For sure, for sure. Yeah. Yes, completely right. Uh, but w- one of the things that Putin and the Russians are really good at, and that Trump is even better at, is what they do is they identify pre-existing divisions in the target society. And then they figure out ways to heighten them. That's why Putin was doing this thing where he was uh, using bots and trolls out of St. Petersburg to actually stimulate opposing rallies across the street from each other in several American cities. Uh, and Trump is, of course, even better at that, finding these divisions like, you know, mask wearing is now going to be a political division. Liberate Michigan. That's what he's doing. He's exploiting these divisions for political gain. And you're right. The divisions have to be there to start with. So the roots of this stuff are not new. That's why I was writing about them in 1993. Um, we've been seeing attacks from the left on the notion of objectivity and truth since at least the 60s and 70s. And we've been seeing attacks from the right on mainstream media, science, government, since Rush Limbaugh. Limbaugh has this thing he does about, or had, Mm. um, about the four corners of deceit, the things that you must not believe. And those are academia, science, government, and journalism. (laughs) 
Um, and that's what Trump is doing when he says, don't believe what you see in the media, believe me. Um, he's adding to that. So these, so what's happening now is you've got technology, which is new, plus these political figures taking those existing ideas to the next level. So here's the thing about Martin Gurry. Greatly respect, hats off, all of that. There is some difference between us, I think, at least in emphasis, mm -hmm. maybe more than emphasis. Because I understand the Guri type story. Well, not affix this specifically to him, because a lot of people kind of say what I'm about to say, which is American institutions failed. You had, you know, Vietnam, Watergate, inflation, 9-11, uh, financial crisis. And then you had, so, so the institutions failed, and then you had the rise of these social media and digital media, which flattened the media landscape so everyone could see the failure. There was no place for the elites to hide their failures. And that led to disillusionment. And that led to nihilism because no one knew what to replace the institutions with. And I think the problem with that scenario is it misses the elephant in the middle of the room, the big frigging deal. And that is, no, I don't think this happened mainly because institutions failed. Actually, I think America's institutions have done pretty well. And I wouldn't trade them for earlier American institutions or any other country's institutions. I think what's been going on now since the 70s, then ramping up in the 90s, and then really taking off in the last five years is a systematic, organized, determined attack on institutions by actors who are determined to polarize, divide the country, spread fake news, create alternative media environments, create distrust, and exploit distrust. In other words, what I'm saying is this was not primarily suicide. This was not primarily natural death of trust in institutions. This is assassination. Hmm. We have had these figures who have been working very hard to diminish trust in, for example, media. You hear that all the time. Well, that's going to have an effect in 50 years, and it has even more of an effect when it comes out of the mouth of a U.S. president. So there's a difference in emphasis there. I'm, I'm sort of not about, gee, what happened? Our institutions failed. Where are we? I'm more about, let's understand that this is epistemic warfare, information warfare being waged against us by actors who are frequently malevolent, and confront them. We need to understand what's being done to us and round on it and fight it. One addendum to that is, to Camille's point, is that in, I agree with that, and, and uh, particularly on this, you know, on, on the point of institutions, and I've talked about it a lot on the show, is that, you know, I have always said and tried to argue that uh, American institutions are robust and we can outlive this uh, Trump thing. And I think that kind of some of the overstatement that you're referencing, Camille, some of the hyperventilating about we're, you know, about, you know, a minute and a half from fascism is coming from people within media class, academia, et cetera, and it's just online and Twitter, who don't trust American institutions, and they never have. And so when this happened, uh, they obviously, and Donald Trump happened, they obviously presumed the worst. America's a broken place. Uh, in which the institutions have always been corrupt, have always been whatever, racist, sexist, patriarchal, whatever it might be, and that this is coming on and it's the wheels are just about to fall off now. So it was almost, I mean, you have this moment where, you know, Lenin, to reference Lenin again, is in Switzerland writing Iskra and saying it's all about to fall apart in Russia, but that was actually real, whereas people have that mm. kind of revolutionary idea that Trump's revolution is going to be met 
with this counter-revolution because America's uh, uh, systems cannot handle this. And this is fascism, this is X, Y, and Z, and all the hyperventilating we've talked about in the show for four and a half, five years. And that didn't come to pass. And one of the things I find odd about it is no one will step back from that and say, yeah, okay, we were kind of wrong about that. Trump was a disaster, and here is the long tail of all the Trump disasters, and we should make sure that we're trying to correct it. But yeah, we were wrong. I mean, America didn't fall apart. Um, but I suspect that these are people that always thought it would and probably should, too. A lot of people uh, agree, Jonathan, with, in, who work in the media, agree with your basic take of like, no, this is an attack. Uh, this is a, an assassination attempt from the outside looking in. And their response to it is to explicitly reject areas of the old liberal way of doing things as being inadequate for such a yeah. battle. The, the term both sidesism is an insult in journalism <laughs> yeah. now. Like, oh, my God, there he is using uh, both sidesism again. There he is platforming a senator by inviting the senator onto his or her, her uh, television show so that people are responding to the same thing that you're looking at. They work in these institutions. And to my mind, and maybe I'm curious to, to whether it, it's also yours, um, are rejecting the usual processes by which they are supposed to or traditionally have gone about discovering truth. So journalists are in a really difficult position. I'm a career journalist. Um, so I think are you guys. So you know this too. Uh, we had rules for a long time and they were kind of obeyed. And the reason we had both sidesism or multiple sidesism was we had multiple sides and typically they were on the level. We did not gear those rules for an environment where you were using uh, Russian-style disinformation tactics on a national scale, where a politician, his party, his followers were capable of saying absolutely, literally anything without regard to truth or consistency, doing that multiple times a day. Um, that's an environment in which our old model simply collapses. It's not designed for a sociopathic system. Remember, I, I defined information warfare, epistemic warfare, as an attack on the environment. This is like suddenly being in an environment that's full of acid rain. You can't breathe the air. You, you. So we're now in a terrible position. Do we start using verbs like lie in reporting on Donald Trump? Well, that's a big bridge to cross. When I was trained in journalism, we never said that. Even if we believed a politician was lying, we let the readers figure that out. When you're confronted with tactics with a, a politician saying on purpose it did not rain during my inauguration when it did rain. What do you call that if not a lie? How do you report on this kind of, this kind of problem? Um, when both sidesism becomes reporting anything that a politician averts, including that a former congressman uh, killed one of his staffers, completely made up, um, do you even repeat that? So this puts journalism in an impossible position Disinformation is designed to put journalism in an impossible position. Conspiracy theories, for example, impossible dilemma. If you debunk them, then you report them. Then you've uh, conveyed them. You've amplified them. You've inserted them in people's minds. If you don't report them, then they continue to spread. That's how these tactics work. So my sympathy actually is with American journalists who I think in this very difficult environment First, we were completely knocked on our asses, had no idea how to deal with any of this stuff, really botched it in 2016. Um, 
2020 was better. Much better job of providing context about things like the Hunter Biden hard drive, which from the outside had all the earmarks of a classic Soviet-style disinformation drop, right? You know, hard drive appears out of nowhere. Blind technician gives it to Rudy Giuliani. What? Um, so a lot better on that. I am maybe unlike you, Camille. I'm a fanboy of journalism for the past five years because hmm. in this impossible situation, yeah, there were a lot of mess ups. But what it did manage to do was some extraordinarily hard driving, brave reporting on the Trump administration. Most of the bad things that we found out, we did not find out initially through congressional hearings or law enforcement or the Mueller report. We found out because journalists, journalists found out and told us. And they did that in an environment where the chief executive was calling them fake news and an enemy of the American people. So my sympathies are with journalists, and yes, we can do better. And what I'm particularly worried about is something you alluded to, is the decline of viewpoint diversity in newsrooms. When that hits a certain tipping point where there just aren't enough conservatives around, then you can start to see a lot of distortion in coverage because people no longer start asking questions from conservative viewpoints, and you get factions develop like at certain major papers mm -hmm. object to an op-ed piece, and we know how that that comes out. Right. So those are problems too. I think the big problem for journalism, frankly, is the collapse of the, the economic model because it's hard to do good work, you know, if, if you have no money. Can I add a quick thing yeah. there? Um, and, I, and you actually uh, just mentioned it with the, the thing you mentioned in the book too, the Tom Cotton editorial of the New York Times. And I kind of think of it as the kind of airline uh, baggage charge fee which came out of gas prices being high. And they said, oh, we're going to charge you 20 bucks now. We're losing a lot of money. And then it just stayed. And we just don't even think about it. Now we just pay every time we check our bags. I that's my worry here, is that I get the point, absolutely, that it's very, very hard to do both sides in a, sides uh, of an argument when one argument is drawing onto a map with a Sharpie and saying, here, no, actually the storm was over here. And it's utter nonsense. And you can't actually do that. You have to, in some way, call that out and tell your readers that that's just flagrantly not true. But what I worry is the Tom Cotton thing is it extends that we no longer remember why the initial baggage fee was $25 per bag. And it just becomes standard, <laughs> right? Is that now we're like, uh -huh. oh, you know, we're not going to do both sides of this. This is, we have to call this a lie when it's just an ordinary boring, you know, probably shitty Republican saying something shitty. And then there is a kind of activist impulse there that I worry mm -hmm. might have had a purpose um, when we're deep in the Trump world, but now is just hanging around and we're getting used to, you know, democracy dies in darkness and we're going to determine what democracy and darkness both are. Right. I think that's right. And, and something else happens, too, that you could add to that, which is Again, this is an impossible situation. The way you deal with mass disinformation in a democracy, the only really good way to deal with it is not to have it in the first place because it creates situations like so. Mainstream media begins fact-checking Trump, reporting lie after lie. What does conservative media do? It provides an alternative for Trump constituencies who say now, look at how biased mainstream media is. Look at all the fact-checkers. They're clearly anti-Trump. So what you're doing is giving fuel for epistemic separatism on the right. They go even further down yep. their rabbit hole, citing the what they view as the clear anti-Trump bias of mainstream media. So now you've exacerbated polarization. Well, that's, again, exactly what disinformation is trying to do. And you say, so how do we get out of this doom loop? And the answer is it's really hard. You don't want to be here to begin with. Mm -hmm. but, now that, but now that we are here, and, and again, I, I think I, I appreciate all of the context that you offered, and I'm, I'm 
still, I'm parsing some of it. I, I think there are probably some disagreements there that we don't necessarily need to unpack. <laughs> um, but, but now that we are into it, the question of how we get out does become like all important and what it means becomes all important. Um, I, I'm remembering, especially as you Moynihan just mentioned, like democracy dies in darkness and, you know, they're both going to define what democracy is and darkness. Like that's the, it's the moral clarity that we talked to Wesley Lowry about when he was on the podcast some, some months back. Mm. And John, to go back to kindly inquisitors again, the moral clarity is in line with what you described in your first book as the most dangerous thing in terms of the threats to liberal science, as you just were describing it at the time, the humanitarian challenge, notions of fairness and justice rooted in, we need to you know, capitalize the be in black, we need to talk about systemic racism as an incontrovertible fact, this is the most important thing. It, it even, I think, translates into coverage of the previous summer and a lot of the violence that was playing out in American streets and whether or not that's covered as violence or whether or not it's it's unacceptable, perhaps even racist, a fireable offense to express concern about the violence, the vandalism, the fires, the looting, the actual physical violence that's taking place in the streets. Is this a, a racial reckoning that we can all be proud of and that we should be inspired by? Or is this, you know, something perhaps that might have some more sinister elements or at least might have some concerning elements that should be critically analyzed amongst the mainstream media. There is kind of an elite perspective on this. Camille, I, I agree with, I think, everything that you just said. So I don't have any problem with that. And I, I worry about these kind of alternate reality narratives that don't get the criticism they need. I think the problem is not giving them the criticism they need when people get too intimidated to you know, point stuff out mm -hmm. about uh, ethnicity and crime and how police behave. That's a problem. So I agree with all that. We were talking before uh, the uh, podcast started about uh, actually specifically tied into Camille's op-ed in The New York Times, uh, but that we're living kind of in this moment where liberalism is under uh, it's being treated with kind of open disdain by people on the kind of populist right. And for lack of a better word, the kind of a woke left or the, the, the social justice left or whatever. Uh, I don't mean to make, uh, make that a pejorative word, but I'm looking for a descriptive. 25 years later, after you wrote your book and you, uh, you write from an, uh, I, whether you uh, will agree with this or not, uh, I think an optimistic perspective or you know, you're holding on to liberal science as the greatest thing that we've ever invented, basically. It seems like there's more open disregard for liberalism, calling liberalism out by its name, saying that's the problem. We need to we need to go after that. Um, uh, do you have a sense of optimism or pessimism personally right now <laughs> in an atmosphere of what seems like increased mm. um, disdain for the project that you hold so dear? Can I answer that question? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. That's great. Uh, now, why? I have I have hope. Uh, People say my book is optimistic, which is interesting, because I think what my book does is say, um, we can fight these forces. So um, the biggest question people always ask, how do we deal with, with these problems we're talking about, canceling predominantly on the left, information warfare, disinformation predominantly on the right, and they want the three bullet point items, you know, the bill you can pass. So we've had these huge epistemic disruptions in the past, printing press, um, Many years ago, American journalism, the collapse into extreme fake news, extreme partisanship in the 19th century, um, development of radio, which helped fascists a lot. And the way out has typically been, it's not just one thing. It's a lot of adaptation by a lot of institutions all the way through society and individuals. 
So it's hard to summarize, but but there's tons that you can do, and a lot of it is already being done. And I'll just I'll list, I'll tick off without going into them a few buckets just to give a sense. I'm just sorry there's no way to do this concisely, but individuals need to become more aware of these attempts to manipulate them. That doesn't make the attempts totally ineffective, but it's harder to manipulate a population that understands what's going on, and people are getting better at that. Media needs to begin understanding how to cover fake news, conspiracy theories, without amplifying them unnecessarily. It's getting better at that. Long way to go. Social media, big mess. All the incentives are wrong for preferring truth over falsehood. It tends to prefer falsehood over truth. Um, They are working very hard. They've got a long way to go, but they're trying to build some institutional designs like Facebook's oversight board and some product changes like Twitter's changes that interrupt you if you want to tweet something without reading it Mm -hmm. and some policy changes like who can be on and what are the rules going to be. Um, It's a really hard thing they're trying to do, but they're at least trying. Uh, you got to teach people um, media literacy and critical thinking. Some of that is starting, long way to go. Um, you need citizen activism. The thing that works against canceling is to not let yourself be canceled, and that means organizing friends, supporters, groups that will come to your aid if you're canceled, that will give you legal and emotional support, that if your employer fires you, they can bring pressure on the employer and say, hey, that was bad. You're firing someone for exercising their free speech rights. We are starting to see that outpouring of new groups just in the last few months. Academic Freedom Alliance, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, um, Free Speech Union, many more. I just did a podcast with them, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, brand new. So to go to what you're saying, Matt, a lot of what's happening here is a lot of adjustments by a lot of people who are finally starting to realize that the illiberal side stole a march on us taught us by surprise with these new technologies and tactics five or so years ago, and that we're in trouble if we don't counter-organize and defend liberalism, both the values explicitly, Hmm. what we're all about, why liberal values are the only ones that can provide a free, knowledgeable, and peaceful society. No other set of rules can do that. And then also in practice, creating the organizational defenses that will come to people's aid uh, and begin counter the counter these these focus groups of activists that are doing canceling and these troll networks online and all of that. So hopeful, not hopeful. I'm hopeful because if we do that stuff, if we get it right, if we're not complacent, if we get our act together, I think we squash them like a bug. Because um, liberalism has the goods. We can put the vaccine in my arm that's protecting me right now. They can't do that. They're completely nihilistic and parasitic. They can tear institutions down. They can't build them. On the other hand, if we say, well, woe is us, our institutions failed us, and it's a fault of technology that we can never reverse, and anyway, liberalism hasn't delivered for billions of people, if we throw up our hands, become fatalistic, and fail to defend ourselves, then we lose. So I think that's hopeful, because there's so much that can be done, but I'm not willing to say I'm optimistic, because I'm not yet sure if people are going to do it. There's that instinct, too, on, on both sides that liberalism has failed. I mean, I see that both, uh, obviously, on the right and from people like Steve Bannon, who I interviewed a couple of times. And the, the first one, when I think about, he gave me 45 minutes. I think it went five and a half hours. And yeah, it was a long, it was like, it was, it was like the sorrow of a pity. Yeah, nothing it better to do. It never ended. It was, it ended at like two in the morning. I was the one who ended the interview. I was like, Steve, I got to go. And, uh, you know, I get what he's doing. And that's, you know, he's lost all faith in the liberal project. And as so many people 
on the left have, the one thing that makes me very pessimistic is that there is no sanction for a false charge. And, and when you, in particularly when you're talking about the isms, right? When Matt says he's talking to somebody in the playground and he works in publishing and he's like, I'm terrified. Um, he's not terrified uh, that somebody's gonna think he's dumb. He's terrified that somebody's gonna call him a sexist, a racist, or whatever. And I, you know, I think you actually discussed this with Yasha Monk in a very good podcast that you guys did together and had some, some smart, respectful disagreements of the guy who I believe was a pollster a liberal pollster, progressive pollster, who was sanctioned or fired for saying, you know, hey, you know, the, the, the violence that we saw this summer, uh, that usually follows, and he, he had some, I can't remember the exact point he was making, it was a pretty b benign point, and he was jumped on, fired, et cetera. Yeah, it's bad yeah, politics, it's bad politics basically. is basically mm -hmm. what he was saying, and he was, he was jumped on, et cetera, and then and he kind of disappeared. Uh, but my, my worry about a lot of this stuff is that there is, there is no uh, filing a false police report on this. If you want to call somebody who's your political opponent or somebody online or somebody on Facebook or a high school friend, you know, a racist, a sexist for having a benign view, like maybe looting isn't the best policy, there's no sanction for saying <laughs> that when it's false. But there is a great upside if people take to it and they say, oh, yeah, now that this guy and they disappear and they become kind of irrelevant uh, very quickly or become toxic very quickly. And this stuff is kind of like napalm, you know, sticks to the skin and it's really, that's what everyone is afraid of. They're not afraid of that mm. being wrong. They're, they, most of the people I talk to about this are very bright people who can defend their position and, and defend it uh, with vigor, but they don't want to because it's not worth it to them because even though the other side is making, you know, disingenuous arguments, the charge that they're making is so toxic that it could potentially ruin their life, ruin their social life, ruin a lot of things. And that's the thing I just don't know exactly how we come back from. Well, that puts it well. Information warfare, people have pointed out it works a lot like terrorism mm. in the sense that the actual power of terrorists is really minuscule. Yeah. Um, but their power to occupy our minds and change our behavior with spectacular stunts so that we amplify their effects. That's mm. right. It's psychological warfare, right? We make them powerful by obsessing on what they do, and they hope overreacting, and we typically do overreact. So that's the same thing trolls are doing. It's certainly what cancelers are doing. They are having this sweeping chilling effect across much of society, including apparently Matt's friends and lots of people. <laughs> who are terrified because they've seen these instances of people like David Shore, who yes. tweets an accurate report okay. of an academic study saying violent demonstrations can be politically counterproductive and is fired. They see that, they see, I don't want to be that person. And this is very much like the person who's now not going to tall buildings because a plane might fly into it. That's right. Yeah. So that's what they're doing to us. Can we respond? The answer is yes. Um, there are a couple of routes to respond. One is, I, I love geeking out. I can geek out with you guys on this. Public choice. Why do we have rice subsidies? Because a few people benefit enormously from them and no one else cares enough to get rid of them and any politician who tries to get rid of them will have millions of dollars targeted on them in a primary instantly. So why bother? Mm -hmm. So that's what canceling is like, right? The More in Common report finds that the number of really hardcore progressives who are really doing, driving the canceling and the racial conversation, it's 8%. Yeah. Where are they getting this power? We're giving it to them. Mm -hmm. We're being intimidated. 
we're allowing that to happen because it's too much trouble to not allow it to happen. If I had a dollar for every undergraduate or professor, including progressives, who said, well, the environment on this campus is terrible, we're all terrified. I say, what are you doing about it? They say, well, nothing, really. There's nothing I can do. Mm -hmm. There's a lot you can do. You can counter-organize. It's hard to do anything by yourself, but in groups, you can do a whole lot. You can change the odds really very quickly in politics. The Tea Party showed that. Gay marriage showed that. And you can stand up to them. You can refuse to be silenced and intimidated. Uh, I noticed recently some people went after a University of Chicago professor. You know, it was the usual canceling things. Hundreds of grad students wrote to the president of the university, said this guy should be investigated because of something he tweeted, I think maybe about affirmative action. So usually in that situation, the, the president, the administrators, you know, they start the investigation, make the target's life hell. Even if the target is cleared, no one's going to make the mistake of ever venturing near that conversation ever again because the whole experience is so traumatic. Instead, President Zimmer of Chicago issues a very short one-paragraph statement that basically says, I paraphrase, University of Chicago is committed to free speech. The professor was exercising his speech rights. There is nothing to investigate. So then what happens to him? Well, the alumni rise up in arms. The university is defunded. It's massively canceled. The students go on strike, and University of Chicago is no longer there. Wrong. Nothing happened to him. <laughs> the counselors moved on to a softer target. Yeah. So a lot of this, in the book, I say the snowflakes are us at some mm. level, right? Huh. If, if we don't have the gumption to defend our values, to counter-organize, and occasionally to put our own necks on the line, yeah, and get risk getting charged with some stuff, they will win. Yeah. But some good news, at least it's news, I hope it's good news, progressives are waking up to the fact that they are frequent targets of being canceled. This is not a thing that only hits conservatives. David Shore, the guy you're talking about, he's a socialist, right? Happens all the time now. So I think we're seeing raw material, at least, for a coalition of liberals, pluralists, center-right, center-left, and including progressive left, that are going to say enough is enough. Hmm. We need to push back. Um, we are losing the kind of society that we want to live in. And I kind of see the Harper's letter as part of that. I was a signatory. I, I see Camille's op-ed as part of that. I mean, the response to the Harper's letter was pretty shocking to me. Mm -hmm. uh, the intensity of, of, uh, of the response of what I thought, thought was like, well, you know, we're just talking about benign sentiment. Yeah. Did that surprise you, John? No. Oh, gosh, no. This is what they do. This is their whole business model. If they see a head go above the parapet, they're going to shoot at it, right? Because if a lot of heads go above the parapet, they lose because they don't have enough ammunition. Um. There just aren't that many of them. So, of course, they're going to try to take you down if you write a letter like that. Uh, but that's why it's important to have 150 distinguished signatories. Um, there's a lot of protection in numbers and in counter-organization. I stress that again and again. It is so important to organize. Mm. A disorder, again, public choice. I love geeking out on public choice. An organized minority beats a disorganized majority every single time. Um, to add to your uh, organization and, and uh, sense of institutions um, uh, in the University of Chicago case, I think uh, Chicago was one of the first uh, universities to sign on to uh, like a good speech policy they were, yeah. lit by the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, our friends at FIRE, um, who not only issue their, you know, flashing morning red signs about all the universities who have really bad policies, but they encourage 
and help develop good ones in places like Chicago, Purdue University with Mitch Daniels and other places. Mm -hmm. And there's more good ones now than there were five years ago. And fire has a hell of a lot. He blurbed your book, yeah. I think, Mitch Daniels, didn't he? He did. Well, they're they're teaching free speech to freshmen at Purdue as part of the it's great the freshman orientation. Uh, they they were the first public university to sign the Chicago principles. At last check, there were seventy five universities. These are principles that reaffirm free speech, um, even when it's unpopular. It's it's a start. Uh, the Academic Freedom Alliance is a really interesting model. It calls itself a NATO for intellectual freedom, academic freedom, which is an attack on a professor anywhere is an attack on the whole professoriate. And that means this is an organization now that hopefully can do something like what FIRE has done for free speech, which is pivot and provide institutional support, you know, counseling, legal support, publicity support, when they start seeing these violations of, of academic freedom on campus, which typically have come from the left. It's a really interesting model. I don't know what's going to work, but I think we're going to find out um, as more and more of this stuff is tried. There was a comment, there, there was a, a sentence in, in your book that uh, reminded me of something in, in debating with these people. You said something to the effect of, you know, I, I try to be polite. I try to be a nice person. I try not to, you know, sort of kick dirt into people's faces. And it actually reminded me of the argument that I run up against so frequently, mm -hmm. which is people, and it reminded me of a book from, I think it's 1994, 95, I've actually mentioned it on this podcast before, of a university professor who wrote a book called The Myth of Political Correctness. And this is kind of what happens now is that, you know, all of this is just, you know, being polite. No one is actually being canceled. They're actually being held to account. So mm -hmm. that, is the, that is the thing that I'm hearing more frequently these days. And it's just this amazing gaslighting that everything that you're actually seeing is a figment of your imagination. I mean, is that something that when writing this and debating this book that you come across? Because you said it in your book, but in the normal way that I try to be polite, but people respond and say, well, that's all this is. No, it's not all this is. Uh, we, have, we have polls that I cited earlier showing huge intimidation of the American public, and the numbers are even higher in academia. About two-thirds of students don't want to express their politi true political views, and that's true on the left as well as the right. One study found a level of chilling in America that they guessed was about four times the level of McCarthyism, mm. and that's bad. You know, that's that, bad. Is, that is not a healthy environment <laughs> in which, you know, some people are just, just being delicate and don't want to be criticized because they're powerful. Um, so sometimes it is hard to tell the difference between being criticized and being canceled, but usually it's very easy. I have seven diagnostic tests in my book, and there's stuff like, is someone trying to get you fired? So that is <laughs> not part of rational scientific discourse. That is, that is not how that works. It's usually an easy one. <laughs> Top there's, one and the seven. Are they trying to get you jailed or fired? <laughs> you might be being canceled. Yeah. Uh, I did have, you know, a young person, I'll just an anecdote, I, just a couple months ago, a mid-20s person said, um, I don't think there is such a thing as cancel culture. There's such a thing as accountability culture. Yeah, and I'm yeah. Sorry, what I hear we're that doing all the time. Holding the powerful accountable. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is, yeah, okay, but this will seem like a digression. But we used to have this punishment that was called the stocks, and you'd have people who would just have to stand immobile in the public square all day as a form of punishment. Why was this outlawed in America as a form of accountability? Well, there's no due process, so. Some people in the stocks were pelted actually with flower petals if they were popular. Others were pelted with excrement. Some were pelted with rocks and some were killed. Mm. So that's cancel culture, right? 
You have no idea what will happen to you if you cross these nameless authorities who are holding you accountable. And the, the whole point of accountability is some kind of due process, mm. some kind of regularity, and that's what's lacking here. That's a good point. It, it is accountability, but it's a medieval type of accountability. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which we perhaps should have started here, but as you're talking about this, John, I'm remembering what was, for me, like one of the most stirring moments in the book, in the new book, um, The Constitution of Knowledge, uh, defense of truth. You should go buy it. Um, but you, there's a section where you talk about just the period of time uh, up until the 1600s and the fact that there had just been no growth. Like our species had been on this planet and living these short, pathetic lives, like not building anything durable, not expanding our lifespans, not collaborating and cooperating in important ways that could could make things better for us. Then something changes. And you go on to identify these three specific liberal orders, and two of them will be familiar to everyone. I mean, one is capitalism, the other is democracy, um, the, the political and the economic orders. But this epistemic order, this third thing, which you, you introduce us to in a previous work, but really I think kind of develop in a much fuller way, um, is the thing that we have been talking about here, the, the kind of canon of practices and beliefs and traditions, the toleration, like all of those tools that allow us to to do the the hard work of knowledge building and to be able to to co cooperate with one another despite our disagreements and to discover truth, to manufacture truth, I guess, through that process, which I don't mean that we're telling lies. And so you get what I'm saying, people, I hope. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit and to telegraph the punch I wanted to also get into the conversation about critical race theory debate in public schools, um, because I do think that it's great that you're optimistic, because that makes me optimistic. Hopeful, hopeful. Okay, hopeful, ho hopeful. <laughs> hopeful is a better word. But the people that I that I talk to, especially about these critical race theory issues um, in, in schools in particular, which is interesting that it's always the schools, like they are they are terrified. Like they believe that they are facing an existential threat. It started on the college campuses. Now they're going after their third graders and their kindergartners, and they're telling them to confess their white guilt and that this is kind of Marxism. It, I think it's I think it's important to address that concern in a in a way. So I'd love to have you talk about both the three liberal orders, but the epistemic piece of that, um, and then maybe we can talk a bit about critical race theory um, and the tumult in the public schools. Sure. Well, the the first thing that you said, you said so well, I don't know that I could ever improve on it. Um, well, you did the, in the book. What you did in the book was better than what I did. So <laughs> well, people, people, listening, read it. people listening to this podcast so far may think that the book is all about attacks from trolls and anti-vaxxers and Trump and cancelers and, and whatnot. It's, it's really not. That's the second half of the book. I think the more important half of the book is the part that's in the title, The Constitution of Knowledge. Every society, small or large, has a fundamental problem, which is how does it reach some kind of consensus about things that people need to agree on in order to function as a society? Uh, humans are, are pretty good at figuring out things that, you know, questions that are, have immediate feedback that our lives depend on, like is that a tiger in the bush or is that a breeze in the bush or where's the next tribe camp? We are really bad at abstract questions like where is this disease that's killing a third of us coming from or which God should we worship? And for the first 200,000 or so years of our history, 
the way we came to consensus about belief was we divided into sects with religions or authorities, priests or princes or in the modern world, politburos. And they told us what we had to believe. And if we dissented, we started a civil war. A lot of people got killed. So there was a lot of oppression, a lot of ignorance, brutality, sectarianism, cultism. That's pretty much what we did. That changes in the post-Enlightenment period, right at the same time that you see Adam Smith and Markets and James Madison in the U.S. Constitution, you see the flowering of science, what I call liberal science, much bigger than just the science. It includes journalism and law, all the fact-seeking professions. And they're all doing the same thing, which is they're organizing decentralized cooperation on a national scale or even a global scale. And they're doing it by substituting rules for rulers. And that's a species transforming technology because once you got these rules up, I call them the constitution of knowledge, but they're the rules and institutions that, that force us to actually present evidence to people all over the world in order to present our views, to persuade instead of using coercion. Once you set up that up, you have the makings of a global network that's totally interoperable. You can plug into it from any country in the world into universities, into sciences, into journals. You can make a submission. You can, you can criticize a point of view. You can add an important piece of evidence anywhere in the world. You set up this global system for checking errors at a massive rate. The great genius of science isn't that it doesn't make mistakes. It's that it makes them very quickly, and it finds them very quickly. So you can find these needles in haystacks with amazing speed. And you can generate now more knowledge in a single day, typically, than in the first 200,000 years of human history, because you've now got a transnational body of millions and millions of trained minds in every field, and thousands of institutions training those minds, deploying resources, so that they can pivot literally in days to decode the genome, for example, of coronavirus. This is a species-transforming technology. It is the biggest transformative technology I believe it exists. More important than markets, more important than democracy. It gives us knowledge, freedom, and peace. So the reason that's so important goes back to something Matt said earlier. You know, we, like we feel like liberalism is, is failing and we're not sure how to defend it. We lose sight of the, the extraordinary things that are happening every day that no other system can touch. Um, so part of the reason I wrote this book is to say, okay, there is a constitution of knowledge. It's not just free speech that automatically makes knowledge. It's lots of stuff. It's structure, institutions, norms, training, um, um, professional degrees. All kinds of things have to go right in this system in order to get people to interact in the right way to make knowledge instead of interacting in the way that makes QAnon. We need to understand those things to understand why they work so that we can defend them. And once we understand them, I think it's very easy to defend them, at least in principle. I don't know if it's weird to admit that I get chills thinking about that. Like it's a remarkable achievement. It's the thing. It's the key to our civilization. I'm completely convinced of that. It, it, it is. John, Jonathan Haidt has a wonderful formulation of this. And he says it's allowed us as a species to function one or two orders of magnitude above our design capacity. Hmm. To pivot to a more terrestrial <laughs> topic, the, the critical race theory business, it's a basket of stuff. There are specific ideas in there. There are kind of general concepts and frameworks. The stuff that makes me most concerned to be specific is 
the normalizing of racial essentialism in classrooms, like demonizing children, and the various aspects of that entire program that seem to be antithetical, so far as I can tell, to this epistemic system that you're describing, the notion that there isn't an objective truth, that there is kind of this this white science versus black science, the fact that people Aryan are science, not, Jewish science. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's poisonous and it's destructive in its worst iterations, but there's more than just those iterations. And if I am genuinely concerned about that, as I am, the question becomes, well, how do you address that? And it just seems to me that that one has to make the case for both this kind of epistemic system that you talk about, but also has to actually push back against the ideas that are genuinely foul that you're concerned about. And you cannot ban them out of existence. You can't even just abolish them from the school system so far as I'm concerned. One has to actually confront them. And one has to be very careful about the ways that you navigate even something like you know, public school curriculums, which is a necessarily kind of politically fractious process that I would expect to be contentious, but it can be worse or better. And I, I worry that the way that we're going about it right now is just worse. I don't know. I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I, I didn't throw a question at you, but I would love to have you kind of wax poetic on the topic. Well, I guess, you know, this is critical race theory has not been especially of mine, and it seems to be a bundle of stuff that's very poorly defined. And mm -hmm. Part of me says that Charlie Schultz's great witticism about supply-side economics also supplies may apply to critical race theory, which is there's nothing wrong with it that couldn't be solved by dividing it by 10. <laughs> um, and, and I have learned from aspects of it. I mean, I, I think that systemic racism is a thing, just as systemic homophobia was a thing. You know, when people like people denied that they had anything against gay people, you just can't serve in the military because you're not fit for it. Well, that was institutional homophobia. Um, I've even started to think, you know, maybe whiteness is something we need to be talking about, not as an ethnicity, but maybe there's, I, there's something to the notion that if you're, a, if you're a majority, you don't see it. Maybe, but whiteness maybe shouldn't be the word for that. Maybe, you know, fish in waterness or something. <laughs> so I'm trying to learn from it, um, and I'm trying to understand. Maybe you can tell me. So every so often in history, we get these big, ambitious, very ideological ideas that can tend very quickly toward illiberalism, toward totalism, and toward being irrefutable, being totally self-contained. Marxism is an example of that. Freudianism, in many ways, is an example, right? If you deny it, it only shows it's true. Um, Critical race theory has elements of that. So, but we learn from Marxism too, right? There's good stuff in there. I mean, the original Karl Marx Marxism, not Marxism-Leninism, which is totalitarian all the way down. So is critical race theory like Marxism, in which if we expose it to criticism and we don't give it the power to dictate, that we'll get some good stuff out of it, we'll, we'll find the wheat amid the chaff, and it'll turn out to be a good thing? Or is it inherently totalistic, such that wherever it applies, it squashes dissent and you cannot have a rational uh, knowledge-seeking conversation about it, in which case it's like Marxist-Leninism and it's just incompatible with the liberal order. And I don't, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's certainly the case that the people who are most concerned imagine it as the latter thing. And they imagine... Yes. What do you think? Uh, what do I personally think? I think that 
your initial um, your initial um, suggestion that we probably need to bust it up into 10, 10 pieces or more um, is probably right, that there are aspects of it that are irredeemable and completely objectionable. I think Ibram Kendi's anti-racist stuff is dogmatic. It approaches being like religious beliefs. It's tautological. And I don't know that there's anything to be gained from people barking slogans at you, like it's not enough to be not racist, you must be anti-racist. And that anything that isn't explicitly anti-racist is racist. I mean, this is this is sort of insanity in a kind of Orwellian 1984 sort of way that makes me very nervous. Like the, the prominence of it makes me very nervous. The fact that he can reach the level of notoriety and attention that he has that he can have the sort of reach into context that he does where he's training teachers in this practice of anti-racism, it makes me very nervous because once you've accepted that sort of intellectual corruption on board, it seems to me that there is a great many other things that you could accept that are similarly frivolous, but consequential. I mean, I mean, the, 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 for my sense, like the, the purest incarnation of this thing in terms of showing how dangerous it is, is the fact that he can publicly advocate for this unaccountable new, um, well, a constitutional amendment that would create this unaccountable new organization of unelected bureaucrats sure. who have this that. unlimited amount of funding who can strike down any law in the country because it is racist. And what is racist? Well, we'll have a board of anti-racist professionals, and they'll be able to tell us what's racist and what's not racist. That is totalitarianism. And I am deeply concerned about the fact that he can kind of wander around, never have to con confront anything like criticism or skepticism in, in public settings. And he, he's gaining ground every single day. And he's gaining ground in classrooms. His book is being assigned to middle schoolers. I want to confront that. But I also, I want to deconstruct it. But I don't want to pass a law <laughs> that prevents you from being able to deal with those bad ideas because I know that once you start setting that sort of precedent, it seems to be anyways, that you could have those same laws wielded against you. The response that I'm getting from people, however, regularly now is, well, it's like religion. And just like creationism or intelligent design in particular, we don't teach that in school because there's a separation between church and state. And dogmas like that have no place in school whatsoever, so we should ban them. Well, that's the shift, right, Camille? I mean, the reason you're talking about K-12 through education, and when I was in Florida and, and, and doing a story on this, and talking to people about it, and I've said this a number of times, I couldn't get people to actually give me an example of it in Florida, in the curricula of whatever uh, district and whatever school. But the reason there's so much discussion about it in K through 12 education is because it makes the debate a lot easier, right? If you are talking about college, obviously there's legal things. You can't actually ban this stuff as mm -hmm. uh, Gregory Gianoff has talked about. But you know, you know, then you can actually debate the issue. Well, we have to debate it and you know, we'll beat it up or it'll win. You know, When it's K through 12, it's almost like the, everything with uh, tobacco in the 80s and 90s was about kids. Remember, it was like the tobacco-free kids, because then mm. it eliminated the entire argument about choice. It's like adults can make this choice. They know that this stuff is dangerous, et cetera. And there was a bit of secondhand smoke thing there, and then there was the tobacco-free kids. This is why the K-12 through argument is so persuasive to a lot of people, because they're children, and there are examples of this stuff that, that are kind of... Uh, terrifying and kind of comic sometimes when, when, when you see them. But, you know, the banning of things 
just the instinct, even if it's K through 12, well, that's how they get around it, right? We don't like banning things. Well, it's children, so isn't that something different? Well, I mean, beyond that is that I love to ask these people if there's any instance of people banning ideas that have successfully eradicated an idea. And I can't think of any in, in modern history. And when people talk about things like, you know, hate crimes laws or whatever, you know, I mentioned this the other day, and it's in the front of my brain because I'm just finishing uh, Peter Longerich's doorstop of biography of Goebbels, which is pretty mm. instructive in a lot of ways. And the reason <laughs> is, is throughout that the book Weimar be period, and it should, well, here's the thing, is that, you know, there were speech codes, basically. There was hate crimes laws in Weimar, the Weimar Republic, and Goebbels in particular was constantly being thrown in the docket, constantly being arrested, constantly being charged for defaming the police commissioner of Berlin, whose last name was Weiss, who was Jewish, and they were essentially hate crime statutes that he was being brought up on. So obviously it's a very different situation, but every time in history that I try to find one of these things where we try to stamp out an idea by banning it, even if it's amongst kids, right, it doesn't work. It's not, it's not going to go away. And as I've said, to, I said to, to Chris Rufo about this is that, you know, the problem is, and this is, gets to Jonathan's book in a way, is that I was in that Florida school board meeting when the people were screaming at each other and they passed that resolution. And what did the people who were being, you know, told to leave, the, the activists that were protesting, um, the kind of, they were like a BLM type group, uh, they said, teach the truth. And they were chanting that as they were being marched out, teach the mm -hmm. truth, teach the truth. And if you look at the amendment, it says, on the other side, the thing that they're protesting says, you must teach the truth. Mm -hmm. There are two people here on both sides trying to define what is true. And that is a very, very difficult thing. And when it's a flabby language like that, well, it has to be true. And I've said the same thing over and over and over again. I can tell you that, that planes flew into the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. But why is a different argument, right? It's that, so what is true when you're talking about that? There's no agreement on what is true of why this happened. Well, it was the Saudis, it was this, that, and the other. So how does one define truth? And they get in this really sticky thicket at that moment where they say, well, we're just trying to make sure that the kids learn truth. Okay, well, your next job is to define what that is. And has anyone been successfully able to do that? To my satisfaction, no. And so all of this stuff becomes this debate of, and as I said to Chris, and I would love to hear him, he responds by saying, well, would you be opposed to a KKK? A curriculum, which I think is ludicrous in a lot of ways. I mean, Jonathan says, I learn things from critical race theory. I don't think Jonathan says, I've learned things from the Klan. They're, they're fundamentally different things. But, you know, at, at this point, when you're saying like, oh, we have to ban this stuff, you don't think an activist teacher can get around that? Mm -hmm. You don't? You don't think that if they, like, okay, I'm not gonna, I can't teach Ibram X. Kendi's book, but goddamn, can I talk about it? And I'll talk about it without mentioning his name. And I won't say CRT, and I won't say this, that, and the other. And I will give another side, too, but I'm gonna talk you know, ad infinitum about this idea. But they banned it. You can't do that. But then yes, we'll throw them in jail and turn them into martyrs, which that'll be, that'll be great. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe I always have to clarify, guys, the people who are attacking Camille on this and Thomas and, and David French, et cetera, and uh, Jason Stanley you could attack for any number of reasons. <laughs> um, I like Jason, but he's, he's a crackpot. He's lovely. He's, he's nuts. Um, I'm waiting for his fascism to come, but nobody's at the door knocking yet. <laughs> I hear the jackboots walking down the street. But, um, you know, when they're attacking you guys, nobody is, is, you know, addressing some of these broader 
issues of like, how do you think this is actually going to work? I know you're posturing politically. I know you think this is great. Well, Camille, you're, you're wrong about this. You're not, you're not, uh, we all hate this stuff. And they don't want to remember that. They want to say that, you know, Camille, you've sold out. You've done, no, 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 we still have the same agree. We agree that this stuff is crazy and bad and corrosive. But what do we do about it? You want to ban it. Just because I don't want to ban it doesn't mean I'm a crackpot and that I should be cast out of, you know, the group. My like, prediction real right now. <laughs> my prediction, which is also um, uh, kind of my sense of, of most pressing concern. I'm not really actually concerned with Ibram's Department of Anti-Racism because it's never going to happen because <laughs> it's so crazy. Um, I don't like the fact that it matters that that's the goal. <laughs> uh, it, it does matter that that's his goal and it matters that he gets paid by school, public school districts to give uh, Zoom lectures. Um, don't like what it. I what I don't like and what it's happening and it's happened in Brooklyn and elsewhere is uh, affinity groups. This is something Robin D'Angelo defends oh, yeah. in her book so in a I, significant uh-huh. uh, chapter is um, any sense. And, and the, the prediction here is that this is where the next challenge will be and it'll be more successful than the anti CRT bills, which I think are destined for all kinds of legal problems. And, and it's going to blow up in its face for a lot of reasons. But mm-hmm. um, people who seek to say, Hey, look, at a school, you cannot tell kids that they have to go sit based on skin color, which I mean, they're doing on. right now in Brooklyn. I was they're thinking, should, should they have separate drinking fountains, too? <laughs> I mean, you're just spitballing, Jonathan. I, it's, you have ideas. <laughs> separate, separate but equal <laughs> drinking fountains. That's what's the really important. just as delicious. <laughs> when, I, when I get feedback here in 93% Biden land, this is the thing that drives people nuts. Like, wait a second, what? Yeah. Like, it's so obviously bad, and it's not curriculum. It's a practice. Yeah, we're talking mm-hmm, about right. practice. Right? Yes. Uh, I think that's going to be much more uh, a ripe to counteract. And it's actually easier to understand than the rag bag of stuff that's under a critical race that you are really telling kids that they should and will or even must go sit with the white kids over there to talk amongst yourself about their whiteness. That's just not going to fly, I don't think. And I think it should be um, uh, hit on next and hardest and it'll have much less in terms of uh, you know first amendment issues or just cultural just constitution so of knowledge issues yeah. <laughs> a bunch of kids want to sit around and talk about their <laughs> god so matt one way to think about this goes back to something you said earlier and it goes back to what camille said more recently which totally nails it which is you know as a society we we prosper from having some nutty people say nutty things. So it's fine with me if some guy wants to say we should have a constitutional amendment in which a certain anti-racist commission gets to decree the, you know, every law in the country. People have to be able to say all kinds of weird, excuse me, weird shit. Um, <laughs> it's fine. So okay. You want that. That's that's Mill's great point, right? You, you've got to have the intellectual diversity. 99.9999% of new hypotheses and ideas are wrong. But you need them out there because you've got to run them through the system to find the ones that are right. So, Camille, you nail it when you say the big question here, the meta question that determines, I think, so much else is, are these ideas treated as hypotheses or are they treated as religions? If they're treated as hypotheses, I'm not really very worried because we'll pretty quickly discover some of these ideas are really bad, right? Like someone will ask, so how exactly do you plan to implement this? Uh, or a court will look at it. There are all kinds of ways they'll fall apart. If they're treated as religion, then it's a jump ball, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then it's a different story. Then people begin to get fear of blaspheming, fear of heresy. They don't want to go anywhere near it. It becomes radioactive and toxic to question it. 
And that does seem to be the climate in some quarters mm -hmm. right now. And the question for all of us goes back to my book. Did I mention I have a book uh, available <laughs> at a store near you? Is, is can we, as small L liberals, as pluralists, can we defend the climate in which it is possible to sort truth from falsehood in a safe way so that we can sandbox these nutty ideas, try them out, see what happens? That's really, I think all the rest flows from that mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Well, we've we've kept you for a while. Um, I know, uh, Matt, you've also got a heart out here. Um, I, I want to give you I an got a thirteen year old. Fresh, I got to hang out in the freshly program. minted thirteen year old with all your racist oh friends God. in the program, <laughs> <laughs> who desperately want to give their Orville Faubus speech at uh, their work. If you, you guys, if yeah. you guys only knew the backstory in particular on this, uh, it's amazing. But go on. <laughs> well, John, I, I mean, I want to give you an a opportunity Patreon, to, Patreon, to close up, Patreon. close up, however, however you like. But I'm also, I mean, we talked a little bit about um, kind of creationism in schools before, and you just mentioned religion. I mean, is there anything about how those disputes, to the best, to, to the extent you remember, how those disputes were resolved? Oh, yeah, that yeah. kind of gives so, you some insight into how this perhaps ought to be resolved. So the reason yeah. I'm, I'm so happy that, that you and um, David French and uh -oh, I'm having Thomas a, and Thomas, Thomas Chatterton Williams, Williams and yeah, Jason having a, a Rick Perry moment. Yeah, and Hugo That's okay. The four people are uh, <laughs> y'all <laughs> is, is you really, you really nailed it. There is yeah. a long history of political intervention in science broadly defined, meaning politicians trying to dictate what is true, what belongs in textbooks, what should be taught. And it is 100% failure. Mm -hmm. This is just something politicians should never, ever, ever do. It didn't work when you tried to put creationism in the schools, when you tried to ban evolution. It actually just draws attention to the bad ideas. Um, mm -hmm. It makes teachers afraid of using their professional judgment to teach well. And politicians are the world's worst deciders of truth. You need to leave that to this open-ended process that I call the constitution of knowledge. It just does it better. Than anyone else there's you know another example is in the late 90s probably you, you guys never knew about this or don't remember it but congress actually passed a, a, a resolution condemning an academic journal for publishing a study that had found that the sexual abuse of children is not 100 percent traumatizing mm. actually this this study uh looked at all the existing research and said sometimes it's traumatizing it's not always traumatizing so we should focus resources on identifying the people traumatized and helping them. To politicians, this was a study saying child sexual abuse is okay sometimes, so you can go ahead and do it. And Congress passed a resolution condemning it. Now, that's a nutty thing to do. And same thing right now. There's all kinds of ways to deal with critical race theory, Marxism, um, for that matter, homosexuality, which last time I checked was still controversial in some quarters. But the right way to do it cannot be um, by, by legal diktat, by punishing people for being wrong or saying the wrong thing. I guarantee you it, it won't work. By yeah. the way, when was that? When did Congress condemn that academic article? What, do you remember what year? I think it was 1998. I wrote oh. an article about it. Oh, wow. Oh, that's fairly recent. Was it that recent? Way, weirdly, that's the thing that got Milo Yiannopoulos canceled, by the way. He was really? um, he got his book canceled and and he got in a lot of trouble of all the crappy things that he said. All right. He said something about being being sexually abused and that he uh, he thought it was a good thing. 
uh, it was on some podcast that he said it like flippantly as mm -hmm. he, he did. Mm -hmm. And that was the, of all the things that was, the that was thing the thing that got, got people outraged. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the yeah. how of Way all to end of it this. on sexual abuse there, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I try well, to do that super, every episode just yeah. to really, you know, make it yeah. a downer for everybody. <laughs> well, the, the, the parting shot I'll give here um, is, you know, the, the how of navigating the critical race theory in public school debate and you know what we ought to do with respect to confronting it and you know what what the policy goals ought to be i do not have simple straightforward answers i think it is very convenient for you know chris and for the many people who believe that he has chosen precisely the right strategy for confronting this with the bans it's it's easy for them to look at the bans and say look we're just going to ban it we're going to make sure that you can't talk about that here um i i don't have that i don't have an alternative like that to give you i only have the complexity of the real world and I can only suggest to you that those bands may not even fucking work. <laughs> so oh, they, they certainly won't work. But one, one thing that would really help that I hear the Foundation for, Against Intolerance and Racism is going to work on, I hope they do, is some liberal people, some pluralist people who are not racial essentialists and who don't believe that there should be a department of anti-racism with plenary powers, um, that liberals, pluralists, should write an anti-racist curriculum. And mm -hmm. present an alternative because you can't beat something with nothing right and there's clearly an appetite for ways to teach these things so let's come up with a better way to teach them yeah yeah your hopefully it'll be be a little bit adversarial because i don't like that stuff any, at all i don't like his brain poison we're just people man come on um come on. Well, well john thank you so much for joining us and and again folks i would commend uh, all all of his his work to you um but the the new book the constitution of knowledge is very good riveting it, it still gives me goosebumps and uh thank you for joining us john appreciate it yeah, it was thanks, john. it was appreciate fun it. thank you so much for having me we know of new methods of attack the trojan horse